Good evening, hello and welcome. You're listening to People Powered Radio 2XX FM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT and I'm Sophie Singh. It's wonderful to have your company. On Subject ACT tonight, I'm talking with Sister Jane Keogh. Jane's a long-term activist, supporting many of the men who've been trapped on Manus Island, or now in Port Moresby, under Australia's offshore detention regime. Jane, thanks for coming back onto Subject ACT. You're welcome, Sophie. Jane, how many men still remain in PNG under Australia's offshore regime? And are they all now in Port Moresby? Mostly they're in Port Moresby. There's about 230 men still there. There are a few in Manus. I'm not sure how many, two, three. Some of them, of course, have children there and have family. And I'm not sure how many exactly. One's in the jail in Manus. And I think one or maybe two are living in community on Manus. Okay. What's the status of the 230 men that are still in PNG? Have they all been recognised as refugees? Are some waiting for settlement in the US? What's their status? Uh, Well, the situation is there are 50 already approved to go to the US months and months and months ago and are waiting to go. And they've not heard anything? Never heard. Don't know what's happening. No sign if they're going to hear. We heard that it was all going to be over by December. The US was there recently and then they left. So we don't know. There are another 30 or so who have been interviewed and are waiting on a rejection or an acceptance. And they're in limbo because they can't do anything else. You can't apply to Canada. You can't do anything until you have a, a rejection from the yep. US or, a, or acceptance. Okay. The few lately that have received answers over the last couple of weeks, there's probably five or six, they've all been negative. They've all been no. From the US. From the US. Okay. There's a special case of the 50 who are in Bamana. They were negative. There are 10 who are so ill that doesn't matter what happens, they're not going to be able to fly. They're so bad. And were these people who had been considered for medical evacuation before the Medivac legislation was repealed? Some of them and some not. So my friends who are in contact with them say that they're too ill, they won't be able to be resettled because they're going to need such long-term trauma counselling, medical assistance, and at the moment can't fly. And they're not in hospital in Moresby? or uh, Some are in hospital, okay. yes. It's so hard to get the exact facts, but at yeah. one stage we're about 10 in hospital. Yeah. Now that they're all scattered in different parts of Moresby, we're not able to have all the facts and figures. It's not as easy to get the information. Was it the case when they were first taken from Manus and moved to Port Moresby that they were all in that same hotel? They were hotel? all in about three hotels. Right. There was one hotel where all the people were waiting for medical. Right. And I have one friend who was in a motel in Moresby when I first visited at the beginning of 2017 and was still there before they were moved into different accommodation, two years in one motel room with no money, you know, no way to get out, no way to get a taxi out because you can't isolated. just walk the streets. It's a long time in a motel room. Yes. Now they've been moved into different places. The negatives are in one place. I'm not sure where they are. Not the negatives that were in Bamana, they're different. But the negatives who didn't get to Bamana are in one place. I think it's a city boutique or something. It is a hotel, I think. Hotel, hostel kind of thing. Others are in two mile, four mile, one mile. That's what they're calling where they are. But they're scattered at different parts of Moresby with maybe 20, 30 in a place. I think that the church people who were there, Father Giorgio and Rebecca Lim, a migration agent who worked quietly there helping them, they had to do a lot of work to convince PNG that they couldn't scatter them where they were first thinking because there weren't enough of them in one place for security. So now they've got no guards. Okay. So they're very open to attack. And so 
if they're in a place where there's 20 or 30, there's a little bit more safety in numbers and looking after each other. Some of them are trying to get jobs and things. I mean, the pay is so minimal, like a couple of dollars an hour or one dollar an hour or something. And also, because they're not local, people don't favour them to have the jobs. And also, some of them are too sick. And if they have a job, how do they get there? One man whom we support here, he's been living on his own. He got out before they were actually put in a place. But because he went out on his own, they don't supply him even with food. So we've been supplying him with everything he needs to live on. But he actually went and got a job in a hotel because he speaks the language, he's learnt the native language. And he was there for a while and they paid him his taxi fare to get there, but they didn't pay him any money. But he didn't care because he became supervisor of orders in, in one of the top hotels in Moresby. But then there was quite a bit of racism, not so much from the natives, but from visitors and other ethnic groups there. And he couldn't cope with it anymore. And now he's working on a fishing boat that takes tourists out. Again, he's not paid anything, but it's keeping his mind, yes. it's keeping yes. him. He had suicidal ideation. So they're doing their best to survive. The main thing is nothing to do, no work, nothing meaningful. So it's seven years of nothing meaningful yeah. and it's driving them over the wall. But and I was and going to they're ask sick. You. They're you're, really you're, sick. You're in daily contact with a lot of the, yeah. the guys. There are about 70 to 90 refugees who are just waiting, waiting for be medevaced, waiting for something to happen, who don't fit any of the categories. There are also about 30 to 40 babies born to refugees with local people. One or two of them are living with those families. It's very hard on them because it's like to live on nothing is pretty impossible. And if they do have money even for a phone, the pressure on very poor people for them to hand over everything, they're not surviving. Some of them are painting, trying to keep themselves going. And some of them who are the fathers are in the States. One guy in the States contacted me and said, I've just found out I've had a baby back on Manus. The problem about them is that in PNG law, there is no recognition for these children. So in PNG, it comes down through the father and if you don't own the land and you're not entitled, they are nothing. They're stateless. So they don't have citizenship. They don't have citizenship. They don't have anything. So they've got no rights. So Father Giorgio and some of the church people are really working hard with PNG government. A lot of the PNG government people are so ashamed of how the Australians are treated, especially the Bomana situation. And they're kind of supportive, but it's still hard dealing with the political issues. But there's a lot of sympathy among people who don't understand how Australia could be doing this. You mentioned the 50 people who were imprisoned in the Bomana jail or euphemistically called the Bomana Immigration Centre. What made them a special group within the wider group? What was the reason for their incarceration? This was Australia's policy. The policy was to drive them back to their home countries, to force them back. And all the normal things they've done for seven years haven't worked. All of these guys had already been offered anything from twenty to 50000 to return home voluntarily. So even though they were negative, which means they weren't assessed as refugees, some of them is just they weren't believed. How do you get proof? It's very hard to prove your case. 2025 of the 50 didn't even have their cases heard because they wouldn't apply to PNG. So some of them are minority groups that everyone knows as persecuted. They would have had a strong case. Why those 50 were chosen, I don't exactly know how they picked them, but they could only take 50. So they took as many as would fit. So some others didn't get picked up. And so it was an arbitrary It seems arbitrary. It was whoever fitted there. Yep. It's interesting. A couple of years ago, they took two Pakistanis and put them in the Bamana jail. Yep. Now, in jail, you rely on people visiting you for your food. 
and it's pretty awful. So we've actually bought the food, all the supplies, had to find someone to visit and take it for those guys for 18 months. And they did nothing and they were not different from any of the others. And it's my belief they did that to see what the reaction would be to see if it was allowed. Now, the Bomana Immigration Jail, which it's a prison, is much, much worse because when they were there, they could talk to the guards, they could talk to the people, they could walk around. I've been there. It's more environmentally friendly. There was a bit of grass, there were trees. This new place is state-of-the-art prison, you know, threatening in even how it looks. And when the guys were put in, they're all put in separate sections, so they couldn't even be with their friends. They had a a rough kind of mattress on the floor. There was no pillow. I noticed they said that there were pillows within the mattress, but they weren't really. So that's all they had. They had no phone. They had no board games. They had nothing they were allowed to do. They were completely like you torture people. You put them in an isolation. You don't let them have access to doctors, to lawyers, to friends, to family. Some of them had families who just hadn't heard from them. Imagine the worry of families in their home country that suddenly get no news. What is happening? It was quite horrific. Most of the men lost anything between 10 and 20. One guy lost 20 kilos, 164 days altogether. And I did read that the last 18 men have now been released from Bermana on the basis that they've signed an agreement to return to their country of origin. Have all people who were in prison there in August last year been forced to sign such a document? Well, it's interesting. The 50 that went in, the idea was make it so hard until they've had it. They took all their medications from them, but they dosed them up very strongly on, I suppose, tranquilizers or whatever to keep them manageable, I suppose. The food, they had three little meals a day that were so tiny that together they wouldn't make one meal. That's why they lost all the weight. So the torture was so bad. Some of them started to sign and come out. And a lot of them are Iranian. And a lot of them are Awazis or Kurds, the persecuted minority. So... The ones who were in Bermana, a lot of them, remember, hadn't even had their cases heard. Some of them started to sign and our hearts sank. We thought, oh, what is happening? But then what started to happen is that the UNHCR stepped in. And I think what was recognised as the stories of the actual torture and the effect, I don't think they were able to shave in there. I'm not sure about that. But seeing pictures of them, their hair is woolly and wild. Their beards are long. They gaze up into the sky, their eyes are empty. They're like people coming out of a torture place. So UNHCR stepped in. They must have had the approval of the Australian government because they weren't allowed to have access before. So suddenly the UNHCR are talking to these guys who have signed to say they will return to their country and have been offered something 20, 30,000. The guys were not willing to talk about what happened in case the money was withdrawn or they were put back in Bomana. They didn't want to go back in. That was the major thing. The people they signed to to come out was Australia. So here they are, so the Australian Border Force. If they change their mind after they come out, I don't think Australia can deport them from another country if they now say, no, I don't want to go. The word is really that PNG doesn't want all this. They don't want them tortured. So PNG don't want to deport them. So it became clear to us that really they're not going to go voluntarily and they're not going to be deported. So it was very hard to get a word in because there was no hidden phones. It was really bad. But of course, there are locals who work there. So somebody did find somebody and we got word into them and started saying, come out. So once that happened, they started coming out. But then, even though they said they'd come out, There wasn't enough room for where they were going to put them. So they weren't allowed out straight away. So eventually of the 53 or something, they were all out except 18. And these 18 hadn't signed. 
So at this stage, I think through pressure from the church and through pressure for some people in PNG, they negotiated with the UNHCR and PNG and those 18 were allowed out, but they had refused to sign. They wouldn't sign. So they came out on the guarantee that they would accept to be enrolled in the US process. Oh, okay. So the last 18 have not signed to go back, and they're a bit vulnerable because if they don't comply now with what's happening, they could be put back in Vermana. So UNHCR is working with all of those 50 because what it's seen internationally is if they weren't refugees before... They are now. They are refugees from Australia. They're refugees from being tortured. So now I don't think they are changing their status from not being a refugee to being a refugee. But other countries in the world understand the situation. And I think UNHCR is working very hard to find resettlement options. It seems to me that the first option is, especially these last 18, that they will all go through the American interviews. On the basis of what happens with America, half of them might pass and half of them might fail. But however, that's what they've got to do first. The others, UNHCR is trying to find a place for them somewhere. There was one man who was in Canada within two weeks of getting out. He was an older man, not well. I don't know how that happened. They're all very quiet because they don't want to make a fuss about it in case it draws attention and it stops. But some of them have been offered places in other countries slowly. So UNHCR now are dealing with all 50 who were in Baymana. And the fact that the agreement to return to their home country was one that they signed with Australia and Australia has funded and built and maintains the Bomana Immigration Centre really puts such a a lie to the continuing statements that it's all PNG's concern. PNG can't do anything without Australia. Australia planned it, Australia initiated, Australia paid it, Australia prepared it. It's Australia. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to me, Sophie Singh, and the program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. Tonight, I'm talking with Sister Jane Keogh about the situation facing the remaining men being held in Papua New Guinea under Australia's refugee regime. Jane, can we shift our focus to the people that have been medically evacuated to Australia from PNG and Nauru under the Medivac laws? I'm not quite sure that my numbers are accurate, but on my reading, there are 135 people in Australia who've been evacuated under those laws. We hear very little about what's happening to those people. Can you tell us what's happening? I think your numbers of 135 is too low. I think there's more. There may be 160, 170. I'm not sure. It's very hard to keep track. The early ones that came before Medivac, some of them are in Adelaide and a lot of them are in community detention. But since Medivac, the government has got much more into the punishment mode. And of all the guys that came under Medivac from PNG, I don't think any of them have been allowed to go into community detention, which really means they're just doing it to punish them. They came here because eight doctors assessed that they had needs They're put into either the detention centre, mostly now in Brisbane or in Melbourne, where to go anywhere, they're searched all the time, they're restricted, they can't do anything. If a visitor comes to visit them, the visitor has to leave even their water bottle and their phone and their everything else and put on an orange vest and apply two weeks in advance and be vetted and only see one at a time and be watched the whole time. The guys, they hate it. They hate coming and being patted down and searched. And it's so restrictive. The others are in the hotel, which is worse. 
In the hotels, they're supposed to be bussed to the detention centre for an hour a day to use the gym or something. But every time they come out like that, they've got to go through so much processing and it's so degrading that some of them, they can't be bothered. They're on one floor of a hotel. This is in Melbourne? In Melbourne and in Brisbane. There's differences, but I'm not sure of them. But the one in Melbourne's the one getting the attention. It's the uh, Amantra Hotel, and they're on one floor, and the whole floor's cut off to other people. They can't leave their room. They can't go anywhere without the guards following and watching them. And there's about three to a room, maybe. They don't pick who's with them. And they don't have anything to do. And not only that, I mean, people here say, OK, you stay in a nice hotel. But the TV and anything like that is not accessible to them. It's not yeah. part of their world. So they haven't got TV to watch. They haven't got things they're yeah. interested in. They've got nothing to do. They've got no books. They've got no board games. You can't send those things to them either. And are they getting the medical treatment that has been assessed as being necessary? It seems that they go to a doctor... They are not getting, from what I can see, any more treatment than they were getting in PNG. If they're assessed as going to have to go to specialists, they're being put on the list that many Australians have to wait a long time for. And the situation for Australians is very bad. But no one takes cognizance that these guys' situations have been going on for four and five years. So if you have a problem that you've had for four or five years, such as your nose is broken, you need an operation, you can't breathe, therefore every night you can't sleep, and you've got H. pylori in a stomach virus and this symptom goes on for four years what it does to your head and what it does to your health is terrible so there were no extra doctors or staff or specialists or anything so most of them are waiting some of those guys have been six months in a motel room waiting for assessment and treatment i think they might be having a counselor one good thing is that their medication i think is now much sounder some of the people that I talk to, I can see a noticeable difference in their psychological state because their medication's been fixed. The doctors take them off and then gradually put them on what they need. But it doesn't cater for all the problems. For example, one guy, he has H. pylori, um, which is like a stomach ulcer thing that, that's supposed to be treated by antibiotics but it's very difficult to do because many antibiotic strains don't work so in Australia if you have it you have to go regularly to the doctor the doctor has to really be clever to try this try that and eventually maybe two months or something or three months you usually get out of it the guys that have had this in Moresby they were given too many of too anything and they never worked it only made them worse so they've come here and whatever count they do their scores on the H. pylori are very high. When they get very high, they can see the antibiotics are going to work and they need something else. But they can't have that because they've got to wait for three months or something for the specialist. And while they're waiting, they see that this is cancerous, that if you live at a level of H. pylori of this kind of stomach ulcer for this time, one guy I know sent all his results to his brother overseas in his home country who's a doctor. Their whole family is worried because every sign is there that he's going to get cancer if he hasn't got it already. And the other thing about the guys is the dental thing because when they made the arrangement with the medical team, IHMS, they had certain things they were allowed to do. For example, they were allowed two visits to the dentist. They can have basic stuff but no deep stuff, no extra anything. So if your tooth's aching and just filling it doesn't work, they take the tooth out. And this is common. Lots of them have this. One man has only been able to drink through a straw for two years. My friend that I know has eight rotten teeth. They can't take eight teeth out. He's had his two visits to the dentist. All they've done is assess what's wrong. But they won't treat him. We tried to get permission 
We found a dentist outside who would treat it just for cost. We found people who will fund it. So we have to apply, and we have applied, for him to come out to go to the dentist. So they tell us that we're going to have to pay for the guards to go with him for a day and take him there and take him back, and the transport and all associated costs and the full dental, but they still haven't given permission. So he's been here maybe two months. He cannot eat solids. And what's more, because he can't eat properly, the H. pylori that he's got is further exacerbated and he's really sick. And it does seem just it's, sheer punishment. It's sheer punishment. It's sheer punishment. Have any of the people who have been medically evacuated been sent back to either PNG or Nauru? No. Jane, we've seen the response by Australians and a very generous response in the aftermath of the terrible bushfires. Why do you think we don't see that same generosity to the people in need who sought our protection? I think because the government has succeeded in isolating the men and their reality and their stories, many Australians still think of these refugees as being very unlike them. They think of them as like very poor, impoverished people living in a little village and coming here to get money. Now, the government has put a lot of time and effort and money into building that myth. And also because of the press, which working with the government, the lies have been told so often that people believe it. And so they don't realise that these people are doctors, they're lawyers, they're business people, they're sons. So the people who have all the understanding and sympathy are people who've got to know them. And when you get to know them and you see them, they are like us. So your heart goes out to them. But most Australians haven't got that opportunity. And when you try to get some kind of media coverage... It's so impossible to get the stories. People would not believe how people were treated in Bomana. People came out of Bomana like our Australian soldiers came out of Japanese war camps, and we are doing it. And people say to me, oh, I didn't know. But then they brush it off because they can't handle it. The government here has made it so difficult for people who are struggling, who are trying to go to uni, education's not free. Everybody is fighting to survive, except the top 10%. And then there's the middle people who are trying so hard to not slip into the have-nots that they're not voting for things that will help have-nots. So I said to someone that I know who doesn't have any sympathy for refugees, I said, this had happened to you. You would have been the first one on the boat. Don't think of it like that. They don't think of that as having a go. And I think the effect is that um, what we're left with is a divided society. Yes, yes. Jane, thank you for coming in and speaking with me today. I've really appreciated it and it's been great to talk to you. Well, thanks very much, Sophie. Thank you. 